is great talent. It's uh, one thing to be able to do that. It is something else to be able to do that and make it look easy. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> great talent. My phone rang this morning at uh, 7.15, and uh, my phone always alerts me to who's calling. It just said, unknown caller. <laughs> and I said, I'm not falling for that trick. It's uh, somebody trying to sell me something I don't want to buy. Um, ended up, but uh, they left a message, so I thought, well, I might ought to listen to that. And it was, uh, it was our pastor uh, who's uh, not feeling well today. Uh, so uh, here you are, and here I am. <laughs> um, uh, uh, if you're not expecting much, you will not leave here disappointed. <laughs> uh, someone asked, am I, uh, did I ask him for his sermon? I, no, I didn't. Uh, so you'll, I guess, be getting that next week. Um, but uh, I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Since I'm also speaking downstairs, I'm going to take this off and stick it right here. And for the first time ever, probably, when a minister does that, it actually means something. So, uh, <laughs> um, let me tell you uh, where I come from, some of my, my roots. You might have already heard part of this. Um, about 30 miles from here, there's a grave that was dug in the ground about 201 years ago. It's the first uh, Vickers to come over here uh, to the, the States. He just happened to choose to, to live his life. He came at 19 or 20 years old by himself uh, and settled in the Southwest Virginia and Northeast Tennessee. Uh, so that's where my roots come from. Now if you were to fast forward a little bit, several decades or 100 years or so later, um, in southwest Virginia, there was a, a lot of folks in southwest Virginia moved to South Carolina, to my hometown. They all moved there to work in the cotton mill. If you were to go to that little town today and uh, ask anybody there, well, who are the mountain people, they could tell you exactly who they are. Uh, because the folks there, uh, more than half the town, consider themselves mountain people. And I did too growing up. So. Uh, I was really happy when I uh, found out that I could transfer up here with the VA and live in, in these mountains because uh, my roots for my family are here. So I'm really happy about that. So you know what you do when you move to the mountains for the first time in your life? You, you want to buy or live somewhere where you can see the mountains, right? Is that right? Uh, room with a view. Now you could come to our house and sit on our, our, our sun porch and you could see the mountains and especially in the winter when the leaves fall. You know, that's kind of how we're set up there. So I was telling people, uh, we live down Cherokee, uh, you know, for about two years, I'd say, well, yeah, we live where you can, right in front of Buffalo Mountain. Ended up that wasn't true. <laughs> you know, you can, you can be from the Piedmont area of South Carolina, be mountain people, but if you don't raise around mountains, it's kind of hard to identify mountains. So uh, ended up, I had to change the story. We don't live right in front of Buffalo. We're right in front of Cherokee Mountains. Now, that's important for us to remember this morning, uh, not so much Buffalo and Cherokee, but we're going to talk about a couple of mountains that are figured strongly in the writings of Hebrews chapter 12. 
because the writer of Hebrews, and we're making the assumption that was the Apostle Paul, was contrasting the way we see our faith and live out our spiritual life. And he's using two other ideas about mountains. One is about, he's describing some things about Mount Sinai, very famous mountain, and thinking about that from biblical uh, standpoints, particularly from the Hebrew standpoint. And the other is Mount Zion. So that becomes more significant in the scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, so we're going to read here Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 29, and spend just a few minutes contrasting how we should be living uh, on which mountain. Hebrews 12, verse 18. Here's what the writer says. And keep in mind two mountains, Sinai and Zion. He says, for you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that, that not another word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Make sure that you do not reject the one who speaks, for if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also all of heaven. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken. That is, created things so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and all. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Guide us, O Lord, by your word and by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, that in your light we might come to see the light and in your truth find freedom and in your will discover peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And what we find uh, at the beginning of this section of Hebrews 12 is the contrasting of two places, two mountains, if you will, kind of like Buffalo and Cherokee, two different places. Now, to the Hebrew mind, uh, Mount Sinai would naturally be thought of if you start talking about mountains being important and significant in their history. Uh, for it was the place of God's law. It was the place of Moses and perhaps the prophets. Uh, lots of significant things are connected to Mount Sinai, uh, as the Hebrew people would know. 
Mount Sinai had inspired fear and dread of the hearts of many people, especially in Moses' day. Uh, so much so that from what is written here in Hebrews 12, they requested that God not speak to them directly, but uh, always through an emissary, through, through Moses. They were fearful when they thought about Mount Sinai. It was not where they really thought they wanted to go because strange things were happening there. So they tried to stay, stay away. Uh, so Mount Sinai inspired those things for them, and, and uh, so that was kind of locked into their psyche when they thought about uh, that Old Testament concept of Jehovah and God and trying to communicate to them as a people. And so here we are today, we fast forward to the book of Hebrews, and here we are looking back to that, and we're reading what the Hebrew writer uses when he says words such as a blazing fire. Darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. Those are the symbols of God in the Old Testament before he puts on or begins to wear the human face. Before he came to us in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to inspire in us those kinds of thoughts or feelings. He came to let us know there's a better way. There's a way to escape those feelings that we might get when we think about uh, Old Testament judgments. And while the Hebrew believer immediately thought about Mount Sinai, that was not to be the only mountain that the writer of Hebrews was discussing for the people today. So for you and I in reading here in Hebrews 12, and as we begin to think about what this writer was saying, we have to keep in mind two mountain experiences, two mountain tops, so to speak. One is Mount Sinai, one is Mount Zion. There's a difference between the two. Uh, one theologian wrote this, uh, Light and peace belong to the new. The old covenant could not assure men and women of their sins being forgiven. So in other words, if you and I this morning approach God from the standpoint of thinking that we are going to Mount Sinai, we're not going to find ourselves feeling very hopeful or full of joy and peace knowing that somehow we have found the remedy to sin. That is not what Sinai was all about. That is what Mount Zion is about. Uh, so the problem then for so many people uh, is that they confuse their understanding of the old covenant and the new covenant, the old way. The old says this, the old says here is the demand for sins, Mount Sinai. Here is the demand for sins. The new covenant says here is the price that has been paid for your sins. The language is completely different. The concept is in complete contrast with one another. So for us this morning, the two mountaintops represent these concepts for us. Sinai, what is required? Zion, what has been paid? Now, if our theology this morning remains firmly planted on Sinai... Uh, we must walk away with the realization that we are woefully ill-equipped at finding peace and hope and joy, much less any kind of thought of salvation and redemption, because it's not there. What I'm saying is this, if for you and me this morning, our mind has become locked into thinking, I've got to keep the rules to go to heaven. 
to be saved, I've got to keep the rules. I've got to keep the rules. That is Mount Sinai being played out in our thoughts. It doesn't mean we're not concerned with rules and living right and trying to be responsible people, but it is saying that's not enough. That's the old covenant being played out. For us this morning, we're trying to make our way from Sinai to Zion where we realize it's already done for us through the work of Jesus Christ. It becomes essential that our, our theology find its uh, first foundation on the top of Mount Zion, the place where the blood of Christ dropped like dew from heaven. To be true to the Hebrew writer, we must ask ourselves a question. It's rhetorical for us this morning, but it is still a very important question, and that's this. Which mountain are we living on? Am I in this beautiful sanctuary this morning thinking I'm living out my life according to the, the concepts of Mount Sinai? Or am I living my life according to what I know about Mount Zion? Now, here's a problem for us. Uh, we're all... Uh, Americans, Western believers, uh, we have this Western idea about how to live out our life. Well, we're independent folk. Um, I had a friend who had spent much of her career in France as an interpreter for one of the oil companies, and she was a great Bible student. But I heard her say one time uh, that uh, most Americans are still marked by the uh, frontier. We still have that frontier mentality where we think it's all up to us. I've got to do it on my own. So it's our nature to attempt to solve our own problems, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And nothing wrong with that. It's just it leaves us a little bit short of what really we need to be thinking about. Uh, if, if you're locked completely into thinking, I've got to work out my salvation myself, you might end up with little thought of the divine plan. Our American psyche, with its emphasis on work and personal determination, is it's more at home on Sinai than Zion. We like working out our problems. If I've got a problem, I want to figure it out. How do I fix that? Uh, my wife will say, go ask so-and-so. She knows I'm throwing up a wall about asking for help. I don't like doing that. I want to figure it out because I'm independent. I can do it. I can mess it up pretty quick. Um, we're that way. We want to work it out all on our own. So the question we're left with again is this, in terms of our spiritual life, which mountain this morning are we living on? Are we still living towards Mount Sinai, the do's and the don'ts, the place of the law, the keeping of the Big Ten, the list? Is that where we are? Or are we thinking about Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer who purchased our sins, who washes it all away and says it's already paid for? We discover our overwhelming burden of sin. We want desperately to find a fix-it plan, a self-help book, a 12-step program, something, anything, as long as it leaves us at the center of our own struggle in charge of the process, if not the outcome. I don't mind being saved, but let me save myself. The top of Sinai, here's the problem with Sinai. When we begin to live out uh, this spiritual life of ours, trying to be a New Testament Christian, thinking about the Old Testament, and I love dearly the Old Testament, uh, but the problem with that is when you get to Sinai, you realize something, and that is the top of Mount Sinai is a very crowded place. 
It's full of people there who uh, they flock there and they get there carrying their loads with them because they're trying to do it all on their own. And when you get to the top of Sinai with these people who are standing shoulder to shoulder with one another with all their burdens, you realize something. It's not a very happy place. You don't end up where you thought you were going. So the top of Sinai is not very happy. You ever go mountain hiking or walking in the mountains? You ever do that? I do that every now and then. I keep telling myself, stop it. You know, you're not, this is uh, not always easy. You, you go walk in the mountains and you're trying to get to the very top and you, you look ahead of the path and you see what looks like a clearing and you think, I'm almost at the top. And you get to that point and you, you realize something, the mountain has fooled you. There's more walking to do. It cleared a little bit just so you get a good picture of now it's really going uphill. <laughs> and it might do that several times. Uh, and that's the way it is when you're trying to work out your own salvation. You think you've just about conquered it till you get to that next step and you realize, no, you're not there yet. It's the endless mountain where you can't really get very easily to the summit. Uh, that's Sinai. That's the Sinai experience. People living for Sinai are not very happy. Um, they're not happy. Uh, they're not happy on Sinai, uh, uh, pleasured perhaps by their sins, uh, but always uh, after the party they must contend with the hangover because the binge always takes out more than it puts in. So again, I'm asking you this question this morning from the spiritual standpoint as a New Testament believer, which mountain are you living on? Where are you looking for your joy and your satisfaction and your fulfillment as a believer in Christ? The writer of Hebrews was trying to contrast that idea for us about thinking what was it like being an Old Testament person with Jehovah who was a faceless God compared to the New Testament who had Christ to look at who brought grace. So which mountain this morning are we walking towards and living on? The Apostle Paul wrote this in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. God has for us a spectacular life in plan, in place. He wants us to live free in Christ, fulfilled as believers who are not struggling about the past because we're, we're so locked into right now, we are redeemed. And in our future, we're not looking at the future like we would the past. The future is us together with the mighty host at God's throne, worshiping and adoring Him. Mount Sinai continues to say what price sins de de demands with little hope of, or mention of hope and help. While Zion says it's already done on your behalf, we find in him what we need. Someone wrote this. Uh, it is into the presence of the living God that you have come. To innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled as citizens in heaven. So when you and I assemble as New Testament believers, what are we doing really? What's happening here this morning in our sanctuary as we come here to worship? 
We're gathering in that sacred place, that sacred spot where innumerable angels, if they were visible to us, would be wearing festal garments and there'd be celebration. The angels of God bring the party when they think about you and me coming to him in salvation. It's a place of happiness. It's a place of great joy where we know that our sins are covered and taken care of. This is the company in which we have come this morning. Now, I don't know what your week was like this past week. You might have had a rough week. Maybe uh, your days ran together because it was not easy for you. It was tough. And so maybe this morning you got up and you thought, well, it's raining outside. I'm not real sure about this church thing today. But you got out and you came on anyhow. I don't know what your attitude was in coming into the sanctuary. Maybe you were like, let's check the block, get to the last amen, and go home and get this over with. Some days are just that way. Maybe that was it for you this morning. Very often that's it for all of us. We come here really with the dust of Sinai all over us, hoping somehow something will happen that will give us a glimpse of Zion. And so very often you come to Christian worship not feeling like worshiping. But you get here and someone sings a wonderful, beautiful song that inspires your soul and lifts you up. Or the congregation begins to sing a song and you think, okay, that's making me feel better. Or someone prays a prayer or they read a scripture and they read that scripture and it somehow cracks the door open just enough for the light and the glory of the presence of God to shine on you. And you begin to feel better. You began to sing the songs a little bit or maybe the songs upbeat and God forbid that Baptists would tap their foot or clap their hands but you start doing it anyhow because you're feeling better. And somehow coming into Christian worship you realize something, you've left Sinai behind, you're living on Zion and you're worshiping a God who is faceless, not faceless to you but you can see his face in Christ and you're uplifted and encouraged because you know No matter what your week was like, this morning your sins are covered with the blood of Christ. You're not living out your life on Sinai. You're living your life on Zion. You can look uh, that up. You can go Google Zion and Sinai and see what Google has to say about it. I did that this morning. When you've got an hour and 15 minutes, you'll go anywhere for help. Uh, (laughs) So... it, here's, here's what it said. Don't, don't quote me. That was recorded, wasn't it? So um, it said on Sinai there are all sorts of uh, bronze altars to foreign gods. It also said there are campsites set up at Mount Sinai. So if you want to go camp out there, you can. You can go camping there. But it also said there are no oases at the foot of Mount Sinai. Not a place you really want to go hang out very much. Not much to see at Mount Sinai. But Mount Zion. Look up Zion. It's referred to as the place where the king rules. Where God's in control. Where there's redemption. Where there's hope. It's used as a reference to the city of God where God's people are always welcome to come and to live. Now our tendency is we'll always try and walk towards Sinai. 
That's our tendency. It's our culture tells us, go to Sinai, that better land. You can do it on your own. Now, well-meaning people will point you toward Sinai. Some, some Christians will do that. We'll come across someone who's not a believer, and we'll tell them, you need to get all these rules in place in your life and start living a noble life. You can be noble and go straight to hell. We don't need to point them toward Sinai. We need to live in the joy of Zion where they look at our life and realize we've been someplace worth going. Someplace worth going. Someplace worth living. But Sinai, listen Christian, Sinai is not where you belong. Oh, I'm grateful for Sinai. I love the fact that many wonderful things have taken place there. But that's not where we're called to this morning. Job made this statement in Job 22, I believe it was. He says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come, even come to his seat. I would set my calls in order before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Well, this morning, we are not like Job. I don't have to say this morning, oh, that I might find him. Because he's found me and he's found you. He sought us out. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Inviting us home to him. Where are you living this morning? Where do you find yourself this morning? Where's home for you? I hope this morning you're living in the power and the glory of great redemption in Jesus Christ. Now this morning... If you have to confess, well, I've been in Sinai all week, don't beat yourself up over that. We all go there occasionally. Just don't build a house there. Go where you belong. Go to Zion. Live in the presence of Jesus Christ. Live in the presence of him who says what happened on Zion is much more important than anything that ever happened at Sinai. Live in the presence of him who comes to you this morning saying, I bring to you hope and joy and peace in great abundance. Where are you living this morning? Let us pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word that comes to us from the Old Testament and the New Testament together and point us toward Jesus Christ. We thank you, O God, there's great redemption in, in him who loved us first and loved us most. Open our hearts up to the joy of Christian living. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.